3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boerung people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay respect to elders, past, present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued residence of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement, and that a sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. How are you all today? Good morning. I'm great. Well, let me introduce myself first. Uh, I'm Grace. And I'm Claudia. I'm Patrick. And so great to have you all in our show this morning. Yeah, thanks for tuning in. Uh, We've uh, got a great show for you this morning on Wednesday the 24th of May. Yeah, and we've Mm. also got our Radiothon coming up over the next couple of weeks. We'll be fundraising to keep 3CR on the airwaves. Mm -hmm. Um, Our... Motto this year is stay tuned, stay radical, which is... Uh, As always. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? A- so and uh, Claudia, what does... You've been... You've done Radiothon before. What's, <clears throat> uh, what does it entail? Well, basically, we have a week that's dedicated to Radiothon. So that'll be coming up in a fortnight. But we sort of try and get the word out a bit earlier just so our listeners are aware that that's coming up. And basically, it's a week where we celebrate what 3CR offers our listeners, why we're different, why we're really important to keep on the airways, Mm. and ask listeners to sort of think about those aspects of their listening experience that they enjoy and value, and to reach into their pockets if they're able uh, to give some money so that we can continue what we do Mm. you know we're basically a not-for-profit you know running on the smell of an oily rag organization (laughs) so yeah we literally have to keep the bricks and mortar and the computers and Mm. you know buy the hand sand and you know all those basic things have to come out of the kitty that is uh collected from our loyal listeners yeah yeah, and unfortunately we live in a capitalistic society, so everything needs money. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, if that's part of, I suppose, 3CR's platform is that we don't take corporate advertising, so mm-hmm. we don't have an income stream yep. uh, that other commercial radio stations might have, and that's part of why we are able to uh, produce independent... Yeah, do what we do. Yeah, programming. So, yeah, very important to keep keep tuned in over the next couple of weeks mm-hmm. and, yeah, to think about uh, how you can help us out at this time of the year. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. 
So the uh, show for today, we've got a big show. So the Victorian budget was handed down yesterday, uh, Claudia and Grace, and it was big, big talking points. And I'll be speaking uh, to Latrobe Associated Professor Bully Kartik, uh, who's from the Department of Economics, Finance and Marketing, regarding it. Uh, we'll also be speaking um, at just about 7.30, we'll be speaking to Dr. Emma Shortius, uh, discussing AUKUS and all things regarding the United States and the Australian relationship. So very fascinating stuff there. Then um, after 7.30, uh, just before 8 o'clock, we'll be uh, hearing from uh, the monuments of one's own Catherine. Uh, so there's a monument that's been up uh, regarding women's rights. Quite excellent. There's not been a lot of women, women's statues across Melbourne. I think there's more animal statues across Melbourne than there is female statues. Uh, so mm, that, that's, that's exactly right, Patrick. I'm impressed that you... Uh that you know that yeah yeah well i got i got all the quirky stats in the back of my head uh claudio it was it's quite fascinating stuff and then after uh eight o'clock we're going to be uh also speaking to kenyan born male based melbourne based sorry uh artist slash model malik norgia um who's established the all tribes a beautiful lab and we're talking about chess without borders program so excellent stuff coming throughout the day mm. uh throughout our show Amazing. And so what do we have for headlines this week? Um, so firstly, uh, for, for my uh, headline, well, some bit, bit, bit of sad news. Uh, sorry for being depressing. But uh, The Guardian has reported global heating is likely to intensify as a climate pattern in the Pacific since the 1960s that has driven extreme droughts, floods, heat waves across the globe, according to a new study. Scientists said they have shown for the first time that greenhouse gas emissions will likely already make El Nino and La Nina's more severe. The shifts in ocean temperatures and asymmetric conditions in the Pacific, known as the El Nino Southern Oscillation, affect weather patterns around the globe, threatening food supplies, spreading disease, and impacting societies and ecosystems. Scientists have struggled to work out if adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, trapping enormous, enormous amounts of heat in the ocean, has already changed the ENSO. But because the system has natural swings spanning decades and actual observations have been too sparse, the scientists look instead at more than 40 models of the climate analysed in the several ways. Dr. Wee Yoon Kay, lead, order of the lead author of the study from Australia's CSIRO, Science Agency, says the models show a human fingerprint from the 1960 onwards. Interesting. Um, and then coming into a bit about agriculture... Um, the New Zealand honey producers have lost a bit to trademarking Manuka honey after a failure to meet the requirements of the Intellectual Property Office of New Zealand. The IPO has rejected the term that New Zealand has been trying to protect since 2015 due to, it, due to the term being considered a descriptive term. The Manuka honey is produced from nectar of a nectar tree that is indigenous to New Zealand, but it can also be found on the coastline of Australia where it's commonly known as the tea tree. Manuka is a Maori word, and it basically translates to Leptospermium, which is the Manuka tree. Uh, but the IPO have said that this is not only to native to New Zealand, but also Australia, as scientists consider that the, the tree originated in Australia and that it migrated to Tasman Seas to Aurora, New Zealand. And... Moving from agriculture to forests, 
The state budget has brought good news for Victorian forests with the announcement of a $200 million package to support the state's transition away from native timber logging. The government issued a statement saying that native timber harvesting in state forests will end in 2024, with existing supports being brought forward and scaled up, which will mean every single timber worker will be directly supported to find a new job. The supports include free TAFE courses to help workers pivot into industries such as transport, agriculture and manufacturing, financial and mental health support for logging workers and their families. The government also announced the delivery of land management programs to manage the 1.8 million hectares of public land currently subject to the timber harvesting allocation order and the establishment of an advisory panel to make recommendations on areas to be designated for national park protection, recreational use and management by traditional owners. But while the announcement appears positive, the emphasis is on providing support for workers and their families transitioning from the timber industry and details of how exactly the phase out will happen are yet to be revealed. Questions remain about how areas heavily damaged by logging or fires will be regenerated, how native wildlife will respond, and whether any loopholes will emerge threatening the efficacy of the transition. Mm. And that's headlines nice. for this week. Well, now we've got a song for you. This is called Hawk in the Trees by Cat Clyde. I and she fly so free if only I was you. And you were me I get so lost I can't see Even when the answer lies down Right in front of me If only I was
Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Fierce, independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep radical voices and issues on the airwaves. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Call the station on 03 9419 8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. And you are on 3CR 855 AM. And now we will be speaking uh, to Latrobe Business uh, from Latrobe Business School and Associate Professor of Economics, Bully Karthik. Uh, good morning, Bully. Yeah, hi, hi. How are you going this morning? Yeah, good, thank you. Very good, very good. So we've just had the Victorian state budget uh, dropped last night. What's your first um, thoughts of the budget? Um. I guess there's a couple of things. Um, it seems like they um, haven't made major like changes uh, in spending, but they haven't made major cut in spending. Um, they've seemed to have implemented some additional um, programs in terms of um, helping women, uh, doing things um, for Indigenous people, and doing some um, sort of infrastructure works in regional areas. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, but the flip side of that is um, that they've sort of implemented some increases in um, revenue raising. So uh, I guess they call some of these things some um, sort of COVID levies um, and they're trying to sort of claw back some of the spend that they made during the um, pandemic to help people through um the sort of the tough times of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's fascinating. The the debt issue has been a, a big talking po- talking point. Uh, bully um, is apparently it's expected to sit at one hundred sixteen point seven billion dollars in June twenty twenty three, and that's apparently meant to grow to one hundred seventy one point four billion dollars by June twenty seven. Um, and it means the net debt will be equivalent to about 24.5% of the gross state product by 2027. Should we be worried by this, or do you think that will... Is that just going to level off in the in the years to come? Um, yeah, look, it's very hard to say, but I guess there's a couple of issues there. So you, your last point was really important um, because uh, the right way or, or a better way to think about the level of debt is um, as a percentage of um, output so that gross state product um, is a key thing, that proportion. And 24% is quite high, so that's not good. Um, but um, the, the sort of the other side or the other way to think about this is um, you could be uh, borrowing for productive investment. And I, I think, like, uh, our state government has been doing a lot of that. They've been trying to build a lot of infrastructure, which can last for decades and, and serve our economy, you know, really well. And so some of the language around um, the decisions is that they're trying to grow the economy. And so, you know, when you think about that measure of debt to gross state product, um, if, that, if, if the economy will grow, then the gross state product grows 
a lot and then the level of debt can sort of you know be smaller relative to that so i think that part of the strategy so in in respect of some of the debt that's trying to build productivity and and improve our state um you know that's kind of it, it's you know, no one wants to be in debt but it's less worrying mm-hmm. the spending to stabilize the economy during the um the the, the covid the shock the covid pandemic um that's kind of that's a little bit tougher because it's just a one-off sort of spend and you know it helps people it's it was important to spend that money but um it's sort of less of that sort of growth enhancing sort of spend so they're trying to you know i mean they're trying to tell a story that we need to repay that bit so we can reduce our sort of indebtedness um but you know it's still okay to keep spending on investments that are going to grow productivity so, yes, 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 and in terms of the those investments in productivity, uh, you know, what do you what do you make of the? There's been a few major infrastructure major infrastructure projects, bully that have um, going to be delayed. That's including the Geelong Fast Rail, uh, Western Ring Road M80 upgrade, those type of things. Uh, is is that a bit of a concern as well, or do you think that's just all to do with how bureaucracy works in in government? I think um, part of it is not wanting. I mean, I think. You know, you can't say for sure, but I think part of it is not wanting to run up the debt too quickly. So these things all cost a lot of money. And um, another part of it is um, I think we're starting to sort of see the um, the pressure on the costs of um, all of this building Um, because our state is sort of going through so much development um, that, you know, we have shortages of materials, shortages of labour, and the costs are sort of going up. So potentially um, slowing things down a little bit and staggering it um, could have good impacts on um, how the uh, how these things impact on the budget and on the on the on the level of indebtedness, right? So I mean, it's like we all want all of these things to be done quickly. I, I me too. I, I think that's a sentiment for everyone. But um, you know, it's like saying, well, you know, let's let's knock down every house in the street and rebuild it um, at the <laughs> yes. same time. And there's just not enough people to do that and the materials you know they're in short supply and if we if we all want to buy them at the same time all of these projects need you know concrete metal whatever steel and um if everyone's trying to buy that then the the cost of those things go up and then that just feeds into our indebtedness yeah yeah and in terms of you know supply and demand we've 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 seen the we've seen what the what the impacts of that have been and um, it's slowly yep. opening up in in trade at the moment. Oh, China, China's slowly slowly opening the door back to Australia um, with with yep. their trade as well. So that's it's a key thing in that aspect. Another thing that was interesting from from what's happened is the land tax um, will be yep. lowered from three hundred thousand dollars to fifty thousand dollars. What do you make of that, bully? Do you think that will have a big impact in the rental market? And um, you know, should should um, should you know those people be concerned by that as well? Yeah. Look. Um- uh, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, what they've done is they've sort of changed the land tax rules and so that more people will be paying land tax um, on, but only on property, on second and subsequent property. So if you own your own home and that's what you live in, you, you don't pay land tax, you pay council rates, but um, there's no additional land tax. So it's about second or subsequent homes. And yeah, like, I mean, um, uh, you know, like without getting into the like the minute detail, there's an increase in um, in land taxes there. And that's kind of, you know, obviously that's, if, if, if you're a property owner, um, that's going to hurt you. Um, uh, that 
you know, even though it's relatively small, I think uh, they've said that the, uh, what I've looked up uh, is that the, the additional land tax on a sort of a, a $1 million property is about $1,700 or $1,800 a year. Yep. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not a, a massive amount, but it's it still matters. And um, I guess like uh, the government is at pains to say it's not going to increase rents and I'm kind of like... You know, if you're a landlord and you've got an additional cost, there's a couple of things going to feed feed out there. Uh, one is that it's it's an additional cost, and you can claim it as a tax deduction, so that the, the burden on the landowner or the landlord is going to be smaller than that amount um, because they can save some money on taxes. But nonetheless, I'd be expecting some of that to be passed through to um, to, to renters. Like, it's kind of, I don't, again, I don't want to get into the sort of the jargon, but it's to do with the elasticities of demand and supply. And so I wouldn't think all of it is going to get passed through to the um, to the renters, but um, yeah, some of it will. And so that's going to be difficult for renters, okay? And, and landlords are going to have to make a difficult decision and decide whether they can absorb that or not. Um, I think, to put it in context, I think the bigger problem um, in the rental market... Uh, it's the interest rate rises. We've had mm. so many interest rate rises over the last year that it's really um, increased the cost of holding an investment property, and that's just you know forced landlords to raise rates. Um, yeah. Another way of thinking about this is if it you know I mean potentially some landlords are going to sell their houses, and so that's going to provide opportunities for um, for, for you know homeowners. So people that want to buy and live in the houses. So, you know, it can be a complex sort of uh, mechanism. But basically, you know, if, if landlords sell the properties and, and renters buy those properties and there's less renters in the market as well. So it doesn't, you know, it sort of balances out and it can potentially, you know, help to reduce the number of people seeking um, rentals and so on. So it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen, but I you know, like, yeah. come back to your original um, question. It's like, um, certainly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out that maybe rents can go up a little bit, but I don't think this is the big thing that's hurting renters. I think that interest rate rises are what's really leading to, you know, really high costs and, and, and really big increases in rentals. Yes, yes, yes. Another another thing as well with that bully as well is there's been a lot of blame to the RBA regarding re- regarding these interest rate rises when, quite frankly, the RBA are only doing what they can do. And I think it, it may it's maybe a little bit of the fault of the media and a, a bit of fault on the public as well, not understanding that um, they they don't have a uh, what's it called a crystal ball. They they think they have a crystal ball, but they don't actually have a crystal ball. And they they got a and you know tw- you, you look. Over the years, twelve months down the track of what's gone with interest rates up and down, they've they've always said, "Oh, it's going to go up or it's going to go down." And then twelve months later, they 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 change their mind because the market um, changes. Yeah, they need to react and respond to what's going on in in the environment, um, like in the economic environment. Um, yeah, it's it's look. I mean, it, it's tough on them. Um, I think one of the problems is that their, their goal is inflation, and maybe. Interest rates are not the. I mean, <clears throat> it's there's there's a couple of sources of inflation. So one could be on the demand side, and one could be on the supply side. And so if, if the inflation source is on the demand side, then interest rate rises can can be quite effective. But um, 
some of the um, pressure on inflation in Australia at the moment and around the world is on the supply side. And um, raising interest rates is less effective to deal with that, um, especially in, in a time when people have sort of been through the pandemic where they haven't been spending a lot of money um, and staying home. And now they've got those savings and they want to spend the, those savings. Um, for some people, not for everyone, I know there's lots of people that are doing it very tough, but there are some people who have got savings and, you know, the interest rate rises are not affecting them and they keep buying what they're buying. And so it's, you know, I mean... One of the problems with the interest rate rises is it 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 sort of hurts the poorest the most, mm. and that's that's really problematic. And yeah, yeah, the, def- the, de- the definitely. Definitely. Budget tried to address that to some extent, but yeah. Anyway, yeah, that, that's that's a, that's an important point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely is, and I think that's the thing that I think people forget about bullies that um, this comes back. Uh, you know, the, every you know it may not impact the rich, but it will definitely impact the poor in some aspect. Just um, finally, bully before we let you go, did this? Do you think the government could invest better in? You were saying about supply and demand with housing and, and the like. Do you think the government could be better investment in public housing? You know, there was there was bill. There was a bill tried to be passed last week in the upper house by the Greens that got that got denied by. By one vote, um, in fact, by the independent in Maura Deeming, who voted who voted with the government, which is quite bizarre in its own self. But um, do you think that's a, a way to maybe minimise the the impact to renters? Um, look, uh, I, I think public housing, like it's a, it's a great idea. I, I think I think a lot of government policy that's tried to address housing affordability has um, has focused on demand and tried to give people money, which basically ends up pushing prices up and makes it less affordable. So I think anything that tries to address the supply side and increase supply is going to help to lower prices and will help make housing more affordable. So I think they're they're good strategies. There's lots of strategies, but politically they're very difficult because lowering, you know, house values or house prices, um, you know, is a a politically sensitive sort of um, strategy. But ultimately, I think that's one of the key ways. Addressing the supply side is one of the key ways to sort of um, improve housing affordability and address the rental issues. But it it feels, I mean, even watching 7.30 last night on the ABC, um, it feels like it's a very, very big problem at the moment and it's going to take a big amount of work and investment to, to address it. And I think there's a, you know, like, I mean, it, it feels like there's a lot of people suffering out there. It's really tough. So I feel for them. I really do. Thanks very much, Bully Kartik, uh, Latrobe Business and Associate Professor of Economics. Great chat. Uh, love, love the discussion this morning. Thank you. Patrick, have a great day. You too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. And you are on 855am. Uh, you just listened to my interview uh, regarding the Victorian state budget that was handed down uh, yesterday afternoon by Tim Pallas, the Victorian Treasurer. And I was speaking to Latrobe Business and Asso- Business School, an associated professor of economics, Bully Karthik. And um, yeah, fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's very interesting on public housing. Definitely. Yeah, really good wrap on um, yeah the outcome yesterday. Awesome. So now we're heading into a song. This is called No More Yonga by Ted Wilkes. No more younger in front of the fire. No more younger in front of the fire. 
No more younger rock In front of the fire yeah. No more younger rock But in Long Island Why'd you look at them all? Pop black Nunga Why'd you look at them all? to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Wellways has its annual Woodcock Public Lecture on Thursday the 25th of May from 6.15 to 8.15pm. This year's topic is about mental distress and is one of the most relatable human experiences we can encounter. History has documented the unique experience of distress through compelling art, music and literature. Hear from Matt Ball and Helena Ronfeld, who both have lived experience, and from psychiatrist professor Richard Newton. Go to wellways.org and find Woodcock Lecture to register online. A 3CR supporter. And that was No More Yonga by Tat Wilkes. And now we're going to 
head to our next segment. When Australia's Minister for Defence, Richard Miles, announced in March that the country was buying nuclear-powered submarines at a cost of up to $368 billion, he described it as a deal too big to fail. But the most expensive single defence investment in the nation's history prompted questions on everything from its exorbitant cost to concerns about the use of nuclear power and the strategic risk itself. Now a group of senior military, political and academic figures have signed an open letter calling for a parliamentary inquiry into the submarine acquisition deal. We are joined by one of the signatories to the letter, US history and policy expert and lecturer in the Social and Global Centres Studies Centre at RMIT University, Dr Emma Shortus. Emma is here to tell us why the AUKUS submarine deal requires scrutiny and what the risks are to Australia if it goes ahead without important questions being answered. Good morning, Emma. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Emma. Can you hear us? Good morning, Emma. Can you hear us? Good morning. I can hear you. I'm here. Oh, lovely. Awesome. Yep. So, um, Claudia's just going to ask you some questions as we go on. So yeah. Sorry, I couldn't uh, catch your, your voice there, Emma. So, I'm glad we've got you on the line. Uh, can you, I'd like to start by exploring the need for a parliamentary inquiry into the AUKUS submarine deal. The letter sets out the premise for the inquiry in, in these words. It says... The assumptions on which the deal has been constructed are ill-defined and many of the assertions made to justify the deal are unsupported by argument or evidence. What can go wrong? Everything. What are the assumptions that have been made and why are they ill-defined? Well, look, I, I think I'd, I'd begin by saying that, that the AUKUS deal, as listeners might remember, was really sprung on the Australian people overnight. You know, if you were staying up late, you got a hint that maybe something big was coming. And then this announcement was made um, completely without consultation, not only with the Australian people, but without even members of the government of the day. And so there's a fundamental um, problem there with the democratic accountability around the deal, but also, as you've just outlined, with the assumptions behind it, which have not been made clear either to the parliament or to Australian people. And so that's our motivation for writing this letter. And when we say assumptions, I'm talking in the in the broader sense. We're talking strategically in, in who this deal is aimed at and what these submarines are actually for. We're also talking around cost and reliability, around industrial capacity, and also around Australia's ability to both develop and maintain the industry required for these submarines, and then to deal with the nuclear waste. So there are, there are so many things, as we said, that can go wrong with this deal. Yeah, and we'll come to what the, the risks are later. So I just wanted to go through a couple of these um, questions that you have. Firstly, strategic policy grounds. Um, one of the, the key questions is whether the risk against which the submarine defence capability is being built um, to mitigate is actually real and sufficient to warrant this investment. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I think that, that that's the kind of, it's often the unsaid 
um, issue around the AUKUS deal is that who, what is this actually for? You know, who is this aimed at? And of course, everybody, everybody is aware that this is about China and this is about a particularly Australian and American aggressive kind of forward de- defence approach to China. And what we are questioning is the strategic logic behind that and the need for what is really a dramatic shift in Australian defence policy from direct defence, so from the kind of immediate defence of Australia against possible threats, to forward defence, to a really aggressive defence strategy. And what we're questioning is whether strategically that is even necessary, but also how it is being justified and whether it's being thought through. Mm. And can you clarify for listeners whether we're talking about a potential war between the US and China or a direct attack on Australia by China that Australia is trying to protect itself against. We hear a lot about the national interest, but it's it's sort of murky waters as to whether uh, we're trying to mitigate against a direct attack on us mm-hmm. or a direct threat to our um, uh, security in the region or whether it is, you know, one step away when it's the US mm. and China's relationship at stake? Well, look, I don't think that's been made clear in any of the strategic um, logic that we know about behind AUKUS. I don't think that that has been explained to the Australian people. I think, you know, we're asked or, or, or leaders and politicians are asked periodically if Australia would follow the United States into a war with China. And sometimes they say yes, very clearly, and sometimes they equivocate. And I suppose what we're questioning is what this deal, what this submarine deal, um, how that influences potential answers to that question, um, how it affects Australian sovereignty, particularly in those questions, but also how it potentially accelerates aggression or accelerates an arms race in the region, which is something that we would argue that we should be avoiding. We should be doing everything possible to avoid conflict, whether it be a direct conflict that Australia is involved in or one between the United States and China. We shouldn't be playing the role of aggressor. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of... uh, kind of talking around the edges rather than Mm. sort of trying to be aggressive in our language. But this move, as you said, is a really big uh, investment in in something which outwardly, uh, you know, is an aggressive move. Exactly, exactly. I think, and and I think, you know, attempts to pretend that it's not aggressive um, are are kind of embarrassing, to be honest. Mm. Um, Coming to Australia's sovereignty and the relationship with the United States, um, the letter states that while the government claims that sovereignty over the ownership and operation of the nuclear-powered submarines will always remain in Australian hands, there are many questions relating to the limits on Australian sovereignty that must be addressed. What are the questions you believe need to be addressed in relation to Australians' sovereignty in relation to the subs Mm -hmm. um, and also in relation to the strategic partnership with the US more broadly? Yeah, look, I think they are they're interlinked questions, and and I'm I'm a historian, so so I approach the, it from that perspective. So there are certainly immediate immediate questions about you know who who is on these submarines, who's manning them, who's making the decisions when you know Australia and the Australian Navy in particular doesn't have the, the expertise for for these nuclear submarines. So there's those immediate questions of divisions of responsibility, but from that historical perspective, we also know that. 
Australia has continually doubled down on this deep integration with US defence structures and decision-making processes. And we know that that affects Australian sovereignty because it, it has in the past and it continues to do so. So in joint facilities, for example, that we run with the United States, often Americans have more access to them than Australians do, even though they are on Australian soil. And so that question of where Australian sovereignty um or how Australian sovereignty is affected by this deal is a really pressing one because the kind of security logic of the alliance suggests that it will continue to be eroded. And part of what a parliamentary inquiry could do is really have an honest look at that, why that has happened historically and what it means for us going forward. So on that question, um, my question um, about uh, sovereignty also goes to the reliability of the United States as a strategic partner. Do you think the Australian government has interrogated this question sufficiently? And as a historian, um, what what's the relationship been in the past that would indicate that the US is going to have our back um, should a conflict in the region arise? Well, look, I think the historical evidence shows that the United States will pursue its own interests. And that's that's not a condemnation necessarily of the United States. That's what that's what nations do. But there is an expectation in Australia, I think, that the United States will always come to our rescue. And and I think that examination, that that assumption needs to be examined. But more broadly, I think you, you know, history I think can tell us a lot about the United States, but I think the United States is in a really um, unstable and potentially even unprecedented time in its history where US democracy is under multiple direct threats. And I think there are serious questions then about the reliability of the United States as a partner, um, which is not to say that we should jettison the alliance, but that we need to be careful and to examine our assumptions. And January 6, for me, the, the assault on the United States Capitol is a really good example of that because Australia should be, and the Australian government in particular, should be asking itself, what happens to Australia if the outcome of that assault is a different one? What are the implications for Australia? And I don't think the Australian government is asking itself those questions. Well, you've uh, uh, gone into my next question, which was <laughs> to ask about the risk. Uh, yep. this, the letter says, what can go wrong? Everything. That's a fairly daunting proposition. <laughs> it is. Can you uh, spell out what's at stake here? Look, I, I think, you know, everything is at stake. This is a huge decision for the Australian government to have made on behalf of the Australian people without any consultation. You know, it is eye-watering amounts of money, so that is a significant risk. We've talked already about sovereignty. We've talked about how these subs will be operated and by who. We've talked about the aggressive forward defence strategy that it involves and significant risks comes with that kind of a, kind of attempt at... Um, so-called deterrence. But the biggest one for me is is the stability um, of American democracy and accountability of American democracy. You know, in the case of our deep integration with these submarines and aggressive forward defence posture against China and the collapse of American democracy, the potential collapse of American democracy, those are enormous risks for Australia. And I think we need to talk about them. And that's why we've called for this inquiry. Yeah, it goes to the broader sort of theme of security mm. uh, yeah. generally, doesn't it? You know, political and democratic stability, not just um, mm -hmm. strategic 
stability. Um, so we have to wrap up, unfortunately, but what is the process from here in terms of the call for an inquiry? Well, I would, you know, I think it's um, it's early days, but this is building momentum. There's been another um, open letter signed by over 100 academics in this space is being um, published very shortly. I think there is significant movement um, even within the parliament against this deal that will come under increasing um, scrutiny. So I would encourage people who are concerned by this deal and its implications to write to your rep to their representatives and to continue to agitate against this deal because, as we've said, you know, this is something in which everything could go wrong. Well, thank you very much. It's a little bit of an ominous note to finish <laughs> up on, but a really important um, topic uh, and one that, um, you know, it's, it's fantastic that this uh, call for an inquiry has has happened and yeah I really hope that we we do get those questions answered so that there is transparency and at least then we're in a position to really understand and you know see what how our position um, is in real terms rather than just the ones that have been described to us. I, th I hope so too thanks so much for having me. Thank you that was U.S. Secretary, not U.S. Secretary, U.S. History and Policy Expert and Lecturer in Social and Global Studies at RMIT University, Dr. Emma Shortus, speaking about the call for a parliamentary inquiry into the AUKUS submarine deal. And uh, we'll be putting the letter uh, up on our show notes and uh, encourage listeners to follow that uh, story and we'll be uh, following it here as well. Yeah, very. I feel like this whole thing with like AUKUS and the submarine deal is, is, is a very interesting topic that continu continuously needs discussion and we just need to keep talking about it. And... But it's it's so just it's just also very annoying at the same time to see all these like results that keep happening with with it. Like it's obviously not a lot of good things <laughs> happening with it. Yeah, yeah. and it, you know it comes at a time when um, you know we've got shifting tides in terms of uh, global power, mm. but we've also got shifting um, sentiments in Australia where we're we're challenging not only our uh, our um, colonial history, but mm you know, the role of the monarchy. Yeah. And that sort of also relates to these traditional partners that we've always aligned with. Um, you know, we've got the rest of the Pacific, our relationship with our neighbours. You know, it's a really complex paradigm. But, I, you know, I think we do yeah. need more information. And, you and know, this is a huge... start. And the start for this with this inquiry is a... Good, I guess a good start as well, yeah. Yeah, because it's not only just the strategic implications, it's, you know, the nuclear... The um, money factor as but well. But the money, is, yeah. That's the like, key thing to it, Claudia, and that's something that I find fascinating was no one's <laughs> gone back to the original deal was with made with the French, and the money that was put on that is bonkers. Yeah, yeah, and also, you know, when we look at the federal budget that we had and, you know, welfare payments going up $2.85 a day because that is responsible um, and this money is being spent, you know, we need to know, you know, whether it is justified and we need more information to, to make that assessment as Australian taxpayers and Australian citizens. Mm, I see, interesting. Yep, so now we've got a song for you. Um, this is called I'm Nonga Man by Tell Wilkes.
I come from the southwest. No Abuja. Been living down here for forever. Cause I'm a Nunga Love me true.
so don't let go. You never know, so don't let go. Get ready to add your support during our annual Radiothon. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 0394 8377 or donate online 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. You're listening to 3, 3CR 855 AM. So that before that, there was a song called I'm a Nunga Man by Ted Wilkes. And we also had a next song after that that is called You Never Know So Don't Let Go by The Night Before Tomorrow. Thanks, Grace. Now, next week in Melbourne, a monument celebrating women's rights activist Zelda Diaprano will be unveiled. Significant not only for the recognition it gives to the life and work of a feisty feminist activist who fought for women's rights and once chained herself to the doors of the Commonwealth Building to protest an arbitration decision that failed to deliver equal pay to women, but also because it marks a shift in attitude and action in relation to who is remembered in Melbourne's public spaces. Last week, the History Council of Victoria hosted a public lecture titled The Changing Face of Melbourne's History, Transforming Our Statues and Memorials. We're going to hear from one of the speakers, journalist Christine Zuica, who, together with historian Claire Wright, kick-started a campaign to have Zelda Aprano publicly honoured. Let's take a listen. My name is Christina Zuica. And for those who don't know that much about me, and I am, as you know, stepping in for Professor Claire Wright, my co-convener of A Monument of One's Own, and A Monument of One's Own is a nonprofit community campaign for monument equality, which was founded in 2020. So just a little bit about me, and I hope you'll indulge me because my background actually explains my connection to some of the women who I hope to see celebrated in our cityscapes. So um, yes, I did start my career in journalism at the iconic feminist magazine Ms. in New York way back in the day when dinosaurs roamed the earth and magazines were still in print. That is my standard gag, but um, it does date me. And more recently, I did live in London where I led media and campaign for the UK's Equality and Human Rights Commission 10 years ago. And yes, I just celebrated my 10-year anniversary, as we call it in this house. I moved to Australia, where I took up that role at Our Watch, which is Australia's national foundation to prevent violence against women. Seven years ago, I returned to journalism. And at the time, I was really keen to apply some of the expertise I'd gained in advocacy work around women's safety and women's economic security to the Australian media landscape. And I was really keen to report and comment on these issues at a time when women's safety and women's economic security were, um, blessedly, really moving up the political agenda here in Australia. And the lessons that we were learning about what that could mean for the ongoing fight for gender equality, particularly, at the time of the pandemic. So recently I put two plus years reporting about the gendered impact of the pandemic and those lessons we were learning into my first book, which is called Leaning Out, A Fairer Future for Women at Work in Australia, which was published by Hardy Grant in September, 2022. 
Now, I would like to take you um, a little bit further back in time to 2019 before the pandemic. And if we can all remember that there was indeed a time before the pandemic, I know sometimes it's hard. Um, as we approach the 50th anniversary of the Equal Pay campaigner Zelda DiPreno's iconic protest, in 1969, DiPreno famously, very famously, chained herself to the Melbourne Commonwealth Building to protest inaction on the issue of equal pay. Claire and I first met. I remember it very clearly. We hadn't met each other. Um, we met via social media and we said, you know, why have we not met? We have so many friends in common, um, so many shared interests. And we hatched the plan. Um, we shared a similar dream. We both wanted to see a statue of Zelda in Melbourne CBD, a statue that would both serve to commemorate the power of women's collective protests and a statue that would serve as a reminder of the unfinished business of equal pay. More than 50 years later, we still have a gender pay gap in Australia of 13.3%. And I have consistently highlighted, um, this is just getting back to the point of where my, my past work is kind of relevant to, I think, how I, I got engaged in this new work about monument equality, has highlighted um, the devastating impact of that on women's economic security, on their ability to work, their ability to earn, their ability to save, in short, to secure their financial futures. Older women now comprise an alarmingly high and growing percentage of our homeless. In an interview before she died in 2018, Zelda said of her 1969 protest, I thought to myself, at least we're here. People know about us now. This is just the beginning. And I've recently reflected on that and thought how right she was. It was just the beginning of de a decades long fight for equal pay. Perhaps a statue of someone like Zelda, who, with her comrades in the women's liberation movement, helped raise the issue of equal pay up the agenda, could aspire a new generation of feminists. And I think I really like the idea that Catherine had about passing the baton to go back to the barricades, so to speak, and to close the gender pay gap once and for all. And so began a three-year journey that Claire and I took to realizing that dream, a dream that will culminate later this month. We're really excited when the statue of Zelda is unveiled here in Melbourne on May 30th. The statue is a joint project between a monument of one's own and Trades Hall Council, and it was funded by the Victorian Women's Public Art Program, which was launched by the Andrews government two years ago with the aim of addressing the underrepresentation of women in public space. Now that public art program may have been um, influenced by some advocacy work that we did at a monument of one's own, and I'll return to that in a minute. So later this month, Chain Reaction, as the monument has been called by the wonderful artist Jennifer Mann, will be a lasting monument to Zelda de Prano and the advocacy of the women who championed equal pay across Victoria. So now back, if you can just go back to me when this all began, having embarked on this ultimately successful campaign to see Zelda and her protests immortalized in bronze with our corresponding hope that it would prompt us that reminder of the need for a timely conversation. And maybe we could all learn some lessons that would be relevant to today about what her iconic protests represented. Claire and I quickly realized that the issue of monument inequality was a broader issue across all of our cities, states, and territories. And we decided to create the nonprofit 
that wouldn't stop just at the completion of a single monument, recognizing the achievements of a single woman at one moment in time. We hope that a nonprofit like a monument of one's own, which we founded in 2020, could create kind of what we call sort of the necessary conditions for community-based advocacy to fight for something that Claire affectionately refers to as monumental change in their communities. It was time to smash the bronze ceiling. As Zelda herself said, this was just the beginning. Research that has subsequently been commissioned by a monument of one's own has shown that Australia has more statues of animals than women. Less than 15% of Australia's statues in six capital cities are women. This is recent research that we undertook at a monument of one's own. 95% are non-Indigenous. Some cities like Darwin have no statues of women at all. Only 15% of Melbourne statues are historical women standing alone. 90% are non-Indigenous. We realized that we needed monuments to the First Nations women who defended their land, their families, their sovereignty against invasion and dispossession, to the colonial women who not only won monumental democratic rights for our citizens, but also fought for those liberties on the world stage because they were aware of their profile and the potency as leaders in a global movement for justice, to the immigrant women who, make, who made this land their home, and in doing so, reshape the civic, social, economic, and political face of modern Australia to the trans women, disabled women, and women of color who have fought prejudice and won new rights for their communities, to the outspoken, defiant, resourceful women who have broken barriers, challenged orthodoxies, and made our communities stronger, safer, and fairer, and to the women who are still fighting to expand the definition of what it means to belong, to count, and to have a voice in our democracy today. We need warm monuments to women's courage, their vision, their tenacity, obstinacy, resolve, qualities that have, without a doubt, benefited our nation. We wanted our cities and our towns and our suburbs and our federal capital to build new statues, new monuments to new heroes, those who have been previously discounted from our nation's story, and those who can provide role models, inspiration, and understanding for generations to come. We wanted those monuments to re represent historical women who did real things, not nymphs and angels or allegorical versions of womanhood. And I'm happy to say that there is now growing momentum to heed those calls and tackle this monumental inequality in Australia. Earlier this year, the city of Sydney voted in favor of a resolution put forward by Councillor Linda Scott to work with the city's public art advisory panel, stakeholders, and community to enable the delivery of at least three new statues depicting women. And in response to the Monument of One's Own research in late 2022, the city of Melbourne fast-tracked three statues of women to redress its gender imbalance. And the City of Sydney and the City of Melbourne's decisions to tackle monumental inequality reflect glowing momentum internationally and here in Australia. To redress the historical imbalance of women and women's representation among statues and public art. A statue of Millicent Fawcett was very famously unveiled in London's Parliament Square after a long-standing campaign in 2018. Central Park saw the installation in 2020 of its first statue featuring three women, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, and Sojourner Truth. 
And earlier this month, a statue of date in Emid Lyons and Dame Dorothy Tangney, the first women elected to Australia's federal parliament, was unveiled in camera, Canberra. I'll finish by emphasizing that the cultural infrastructure of our cities, our towns, our suburbs, it, they send a really powerful message about who is important, who is valued, and who belongs in the civic landscape. In the 19th century colonial context, statues denote power, control, and authority. But in the modern context, the absence of women in our commemorative terrain, it really perpetuates this myth that women have neither done anything of historical significance, nor do they continue to merit public space or spending. And finally, as a feminist, um, I know that many feminists are fond of saying that we stand on the shoulder of giants. And I am really, really delighted that more and more cities, country towns, regions in Australia are increase increasingly honoring some of these giants from history and their achievements, because I really do believe that we have so much to learn from them. And I look forward to that ongoing conversation. And that was journalist Christine Zuica, co-founder of A Monument of One's Own, a not-for-profit organisation addressing the inequity of women among Melbourne's historical monuments. For more events in the History Council of Victoria's Making Public History seminar series, head to www.historycouncilvic.org.au. And for those uh, listeners who might be interested in going along to see the unveiling of the Zelda Diaprano uh, statue at Trades Hall, that will be happening next Tuesday, the 30th of May. It'll take place at 8.45am in the morning until 10am. And uh, it's going to be erected on the Ligon Street side of Trades Hall. Uh, the corner of Ligon Street and Victoria Street, Carlton. And we'll be putting more details about that on our show notes. That's lovely. Well, um, Adam, I need to re redeem myself. Um, so basically, uh, our NIPS, our the New International Bookshop, one of our 3CR supporters, uh, will be having a uh, documented screening for, uh, which is called O Jeremy Corbyn, The Big Lie Australia Premiere. So in 2017, with the support of an extraordinary grassroots movement, British Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn came close to becoming Prime Minister. So the establishment trembled. Britain stood on the threshold of huge political change, but within three years all, it seemed, uh, it was lost. So what happened and why? So this is produced by award-winning radical filmmaker, Platform Films, with contributions from Jackie Walker, Ken Loach, Andrew Murray, Graham Bash and Moshe Machova and narrated by Alexei Sire, the fe the, this feature-length documentary film explores a dark and murky story of political deceit and or outrageous anti-Semitic smears. It also uncovers the critical role played by current Labour leaders, Keir Starmer, and asks if movement which back Corbyn could rise again. So if you don't know where New International Bookshop is, it's at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton, Victoria. And remember, it's happening today at 6.30pm to 8pm. Stay tuned. You're listening to 3CR, 855am. I might just uh, add in another event this week. Um, Wellways, which is a 3CR supporter, is uh, hosting the Woodcock Lecture. And the topic being explored is being human, exploring humane responses to distress. Uh, they're going to be discussing 
our responses to stress, distress and models of care in society. That will be happening at the Wheeler Centre tomorrow evening, 6pm to 8.30pm. And it will always be uh, also be uh, live streamed. So you can register uh, online and uh, either attend in person or uh, yeah, listen through your digital device. And we're going to go to our next segment now. So stay tuned. Are you feeling depressed about the future of our planet? The Eco-Socialism 2023 conference could address your worries by providing a platform for radical solutions. Activists from around the world will examine the links between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. You'll hear from Japanese Marxist Kohei Saito, author of Capital in the Anthropocene, who argues that capitalism's pursuit of unlimited growth and profits the major barrier to ecological sustainability. Inspirational speakers from the Asia-Pacific region, including India, Pakistan and the Philippines, will take up the fight for climate justice and against war and fascism. Eco-socialism also highlights women's and queer oppression, First Nations sovereignty and so much more, including a session featuring former refugee Baruz Bachani. For more information and bookings, go to our website, ecosocialism.org.au. Ecosocialism 2023, a world beyond capitalism, Saturday, July 1 to Sunday, July 2 at Victorian Trades Hall. A 3CR supporter. ACR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station radical and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2023. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. ராசாவின் மனசிலே இசை ஞானி இளையராஜாவின் இசை கொண்டாட்டம் செலிப்ரேட்டிங் தண்ட்ரஸ் மியூசிக் ஆஃப் மேஸ்ட்ரோ இளையராஜா ஆன் த்ரீ சி ஆர் எவ்ரி ஃப்ரைடே எயிட் டு நைன் பி எம் சாரி டுவெண்ட்டி You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. So if you love chess, I believe this next chat will perk your interest. Um, joining me this morning is Kenyan-born, Melbourne-based artist and model, uh, Malik Joroga, who established the All Tribes Are Beautiful Lab, also stands for ATAP.lab. And we talk about his Chess Without Borders program that he's hosting at the Immigration Museum this week. Joining me this morning is Malik. Morning, Malik. How are you? 
fine. Thank you, Grace. Thank you for having me. No problem. So before we get into the chess program, can we just let you get, uh, let's get you to introduce yourself first. Tell us a bit about what, what do you do? Yes, my name is Malik Njaroge. I was originally born in Kenya and I am now calling Melbourne home. I describe myself as a creative technologist and as part of that, I have a design studio where I'm creating chess products and creating unique chess experiences to share my love for chess and design. I see, that's amazing. So with the program of yours that you established, uh, the All Tribes Are Beautiful Lab, um, can can you tell us what about a bit more about what does it mean and what's what's its purpose? So I started this as sort of an expression of my creative side. I'd always found myself to be very creative and had a few endeavors through photography and mainly fashion. Mm-hmm. But when it came to start up my own thing, the thing that attracted me the most was uh, chess. So I had grown up knowing chess as a child in chess club in Kenya, not necessarily playing it that much. But when I came to Australia, I sort of fell in love with chess again. Mm. And when I had an opportunity to uh, create something, I chose chess. And that's where my All Tribes of Beautiful studio was started out of. And the first product was uh, a unique chess diary that's a hand-woven rug that I was able to work with some partners in India to sort of hand make and sort of tell the story of chess, but the story of design and well-made things that are what my lab is about. I see. That's really interesting, especially because I think this is actually my first time um, hearing about a platform and a space uh, like someone like you have created uh, about creating chess products because I don't think I've any actually seen anyone um, who has actually who has created a platform to create chess products? So I think that this is this is very interesting. How how long did it take? Did was it a very long process for this? It was relatively quick, but this also <laughs> happened during the heart of uh, the COVID pandemic. So the mm. idea of time was kind of out the window. I had a lot of time to sort of focus and get uh, the vision of what I wanted to do. I was also very fortunate to uh, have taken a course that kind of helped me structure out the idea into sort of a business. And the final part was actually just finding partners who could take what I was trying to do and actually produce a product from it. So it may have taken, you know, six months for the initial sort of inception, production, side to get some prototypes. And then after that was just kind of full steam ahead. Mm, I see. And so now coming into this Chest Without Borders program that's happening at the Immigration Museum this week and you are hosting it as as part of your uh, project, can you tell us what, what, what is the difference with this and ATAP? What would the program about Chest Without Borders be about? Yes, I'm really excited about this program. So the Immigration Museum is running a culture makers program, which I'm part of. And I have uh, created a program where we'll be transforming part of the Immigration Museum into sort of a a chess club. So there'll be an opportunity to play in the atrium area and the courtyard if you haven't been there before. And individuals can come and just sort of hang out, meet new friends and engage through chess. But in addition to that, we also have 
some interesting activities like a simo where one individual will play multiple individuals will have an opportunity for some competitions uh, which are open for kids and adults as well we'll have uh, a limited edition sort of custom piece that's being done by a friend of mine called Aki which will be pretty cool to see and lastly I'll be sort of transforming their library section into a chess library showcasing a few chess sets and books that are chess adjacent sort of tell people about the journey that I've been through and sort of give them an opportunity to sort of see a wider mm. view of what chess is and mm. we'll also finally on the Saturday have a, a panel where we'll be speaking to some people who run chess organizations and just talking about what chess means in the community and for Melbourne especially I see so is because the program is actually two days running in the immigration museum is it are both days different or are they still actually still the same thing uh, both days are different. So the Friday will have just the opportunity to come and sort of walk through the space, play chess informally. There'll be a planned symbol in uh, the morning. There'll also be a chess tournament in the afternoon. Saturday we'll have the symbol. We'll also have a chess competition, but we'll also have that panel that I spoke about where that's the only difference. So the Saturday we'll have the, the panel happening as well. Mm, I see. So the I th- I think now it comes to this question of mine where I was just wondering why 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 have you decided to go with chess and what is this relation with like the whole idea of like community connection? Well, I think the biggest thing for me is uh, when I came across chess, it has such a deep and rich history, and it's become sort of a lifelong love affair. So why chess? I think I love chess and it was just an obvious choice for me. Mm. And I think chess is this universal like language that welcomes people to either engage in it if they're already playing it or if they're sort of adjacent as an audience member, it still has some attraction in it. Mm. And then there's also elements of the game, what happens when you play the game and improving your cognitive skills, ideas of sort of friendships that happen when you play with chess, whether you're playing with an individual constantly or with a group of friends or uh, uh, some sort of community, then that activity has sort of deeper roots and sort of an opportunity to sort of bring out the best in each other. I see. That's that's really lovely, and so I was just looking a bit and on your on your website because I just think it's so beautiful, and your designs of your chess products are just really really interesting. And I don't think people have actually uh know much about how because pe- for people who don't play chess, they probably won't even know what a knight or like um a, 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 or like the horse is. And knight with with like your figures that you're using, they're actually quite different. So w- would that be would that be introduced in the museum, or will you just be using simple uh, chess figures for your? But but with the fact that you are using your chess, your chess theories, the the woven rugs. That's a great question. We'll actually have both examples. So I have sort of part of the atrium and the courtyard set up with chess diaries and X blocks pieces, mm-hmm. but we'll also have traditional chess sets and clocks, especially for the competition side of things. But those pieces that you've noted are actually designed by a friend of mine called Jim Cody. Mm. 
And the reason they look like that is because there is this idea of design where you let the pieces tell you what they are rather than the symbology of this is a king or a queen. So the shape of the piece tells you how it moves, therefore what the piece is, which I found was really, really cool. And this idea has sort of been echoed from the Bauhaus movement of design, which is around in 1919 to about 1928. Mm-hmm. They had a lot of really cool artists like Joseph Hartwig who introduced uh, his first like really innovative chess set that had geometric patterns as opposed to the standardized version that the world knew then. So in the library section of the program, there will be different examples of different chess sets and different pieces and sort of some books that show what the design sort of uh, reasoning around that was. Mm, I see. That's very interesting. Um, so, sorry, Malik, we're actually going to be running a bit out of time soon, but I just wanted uh, you to share about why do you think people should come and participate in this program? So, this is an invitation to come and celebrate chess, uh, to meet new friends and get to see chess celebrated in Melbourne, especially. Chess is definitely in the air and it's growing more. And if you're looking for a place where you can find uh, friends to continue your chess journey on, whether it's regular meetups or connecting online, this is a great opportunity to do that. I see. That's lovely. Well, thank you so much, Malik, for coming to chat for us on the show. We wish we could. We really wish we could have had you in the studio today. No worries. Thanks, Diane Grace. But thank you for having me. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was Kenyan-born artist and Melbourne, uh, Mel- sorry, Kenyan-born Melbourne-based artist Malik Joroga, speaking about his upcoming Chest Without Borders program happening at the Immigration Museum on May 26 and May 27, which is this Friday and Saturday. So you can hit uh, hit that for a two-day celebration of chess, combining the love of game with the history and diversity of our community. The program is free, but you have to book, so make sure to get both Friday and Saturday tickets if you're attending both days by heading to museumvictoria.com.au. But of course, if you just want to go for one day, please feel free to do so, but obviously it'll be really nice because both days are different. So if you're not sure where the Immigration Museum is, it's actually at 400 Flinders Street, Melbourne, Victoria. But in regards to this uh, Culture Makers program, that Chess Without Broggers, uh, Chess Without borders are happening it's also including a lot of other events that are going on as well it's regarding all the culture and diversity so uh, if you feel like this is the one that you might yeah, are going to have to miss out um that's okay please also make sure to go for other other programs part of the culture makers program that's happening at um at all three museum victoria sites they basically have uh a lot of other activities uh hold by many many other like artists as well so yeah please feel free to go for that and this is called the culture makers program basically so yeah i think that's all we have for our show today it's been a mix of budget and cultural diversity yeah it's been a a a very uh mixed show today that um chess weekend sounds really fascinating and I, i love the idea of um you know, chess without borders because it is such an international 
game. Mm. Definitely, yeah. <laughs> it definitely is, and it's actually quite um, intense to watch. It's, 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 yeah. it's a bit like um, you've, got to, you've got to you've got to really switch on uh, in terms of what's going on and. The piece is flying everywhere, so it makes it <laughs> Yeah. I remember when I first got to know about this program, I was a bit questioning because what we understand about immigration museums are that, you know, it's talking about immigration. And mm. we, had a, we had a segment before talking about the international students who were part of a film uh, that was um, directed by Catherine Simone's. Uh, and obviously that one was... We, we could understand it's about immigration because you know international students came all the way from different parts of the world into this uh, into into Australia so it got me first thinking like oh why is there a chess program happening at an immigration museum so now that we got to know that this is about community building and it's from different people and this is going to be with different people so that's I think that's the whole thing about um, immigration as well it's not just about the whole idea of people coming in but it's about then what they build, contribute yeah, uh, yeah exactly what they, what they contribute and building their rapport with like people yeah and um, you know enriching everyone's experience by sharing their knowledge and the way that things um, are done in different spaces and different countries and cultures I was at the Islamic Museum I think it was over Easter actually mm. and yeah, that was uh, celebrating the origins of chess um, in in Islamic um, yeah. communities. I think chess is a very interesting activity. Now, it's actually very calming and therapeutic <laughs> as well. Have you played chess before? Claudia? I don't find it therapeutic. <laughs> I find it quite stressful. My um, husband's an excellent chess player and Ooh. I always lose. So um, oh, yeah, he's oh no. very competitive. He shows no compassion whatsoever. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, but I think I think that would be the different case because um, I find the competitiveness very um, fun and intriguing <laughs> because you gotta really think like, oh my god, where are you gonna move next, and then how are you gonna win? And I'm not sure if you've watched the the gam the Queen's yeah. Gambit. Yes. That was such yeah. a great yeah. movie yeah. on chess as well. So like so interesting, and and, and obviously with this program that's gonna happen. The, um, the pieces aren't actually what we have always yes. imagined so I think it'll be very interesting to for I mean so hard to like actually describe to our listeners what it is because we haven't been yeah we haven't <laughs> no, been there no. and we and uh, um, if you head to ATAP's website that that uh, which is alltribesarebeautiful.com that's where you're able to see the different unique pieces that are ongoing uh, there but yep, so that's all we can basically say in terms of when it comes to voice. But um, do head to the program happening this Friday and Saturday at yeah. Immigration Museum. So that's where you can see the beautiful pieces and the heavily the heavy wooden rugs. Yeah, yep. and play chess. Yeah, excellent. Awesome. Excellent stuff. Looking forward to it. And uh, we'll see uh, everyone next week, um, Reconciliation Week. So we'll be bringing you um, some stories there and talking about reconciliation between First Nations Australians and mainstream Australia mm -hmm. and definitely a lot happening in that space. Yep. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Bye-bye. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. 
Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.